Turn with me, please, to the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. If you uh, go to uh, the history books, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, you'll find Ezra after that, and then Nehemiah comes directly after Ezra. Start a new series this morning in the book of Nehemiah, the series we've entitled Arise and Build. And uh, we trust that God is going to uh, really encourage us and bless us as we study this particular book together over the, ne- over the coming weeks. I'm going to read the first four verses of chapter one this morning. You can follow along with me on the screen or uh, in your own Bibles today, whatever forms they take. <clears throat> the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This is the word of God to us this morning. <clears throat> Father, as we open up, this, uh, open up your word together today, Lord, we pray that uh, through your Holy Spirit you might speak to our hearts. You might remind us afresh of... The fact that as your people, Lord, we very much come under your plans and purposes. And uh, Lord, you've been very much weaving your story throughout the whole of the Bible. And even today, we are part of that ongoing story. And we pray today that uh, as we hear how you worked in uh, this particular situation in the time of Nehemiah, that you are at work in our situation, in our times. And we pray that uh, you would help us to, um, yeah, to learn from this particular passage uh, things which will uh, very much uh, be applicable to us in our own time. Lord, we pray that uh, you might uh, not only cleanse us, that you might mould us, that you might fill us, and that you might use us for your honour and glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> when we mention the, uh, the name Nehemiah, I'm sure that the first thing that uh, comes to mind for many of you is the fact that here is a man who built a wall, Nehemiah and his wall. But can I say, right from, the, right from the word go, we need to remember that Nehemiah is so much more than just that. It's so much more than just the building of the walls or the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. I've entitled the message today, Broken Walls and a Broken Heart. And uh, the reason I've done it is we're going to see the fact that God is going to uh, use this particular situation in Jerusalem to really move the heart of Nehemiah. And throughout this whole uh, uh, book, what we're going to find is, is the fact that this is part of the overarching narrative, if you like, of God's plans and purposes in all of human history. In fact, the Bible is this story of God through his son Jesus 
coming into the world to redeem a people from every nation, from every tribe, from every language, from every tongue, and to bring them into his eternal kingdom where they will one day be part of this new heaven and new earth. That is God's overarching story right from the very beginning of the Bible right through until now in our time and right through until the very time where God will return in the, in the person of his son Jesus Christ and set up his eternal kingdom. The Bible is the account of how God is at work in achieving his purposes. And just as Nehemiah plays a part in God's story, so do we. We play a part in God's story as well. And in the, the story of Nehemiah, what we're going to find is we're going to find some, some really profound and helpful principles that will point us to how we might find, but not only find, but also faithfully and, and effectively play our role as God's people in his eternal plan and purposes. So this morning we're going to look at it under three headings, or three things which uh, we, uh, will help us discover our, our purpose and how we can effectively uh, and faithfully play our role in God's eternal plan and purposes this morning. And the first is this, that we need to understand that when it comes to God's eternal purposes, God so often uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And we'll see that in verse 1 of our passage this morning. It says, these are the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. I saw a meme on Facebook this week that said something like this. If you ever feel useless, remember that there is a lifeguard at the Olympic swimming events. <clears throat> Sometimes we can feel as useless as that lifeguard, can't we? Feeling as though we have very little to offer. Very, having a very little of no value or, or no value. You know, when it comes to Nehemiah, there was nothing that actually set Nehemiah apart from a human perspective. All he is is identified here as a, a man who is the son of this guy called Hakaliah. And in fact, Hakaliah, we only find two mentions of him in the whole book of Nehemiah and nowhere else in the Bible. We don't know anything about him. Basically, Hekeliah is a nobody, and so Nehemiah is the son of a nobody. Nehemiah comes from a very ordinary background, and yet God enabled him to lead God's people in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and to reestablish the faithful remnant of, of, of God's people after the exile back there in Judah and Jerusalem. Of course, if this hadn't been done, if Nehemiah hadn't actually been used by God to do this, then basically what would have happened is that the, the, the people of, of Israel would have been absorbed back into the pagan culture of the day and, and a, a, a culture that is completely at odds with God's plans and purposes, a culture that seeks to, even the same kind of culture that we find today that seeks to absorb us into its ways. And, and so that the people would eventually have just been absorbed and disappeared. So if, if God hadn't used this man, then God's plans and purposes wouldn't have actually been, you know, been able to, to, uh, to be put in place. And we need to remember today that you know, God is using this man, Nehemiah, to accomplish his purposes, and there's nothing going to thwart that. Nothing's going to change that. Nothing's going to alter God's purposes because he is the all-powerful God. And as I was reflecting on that this week, I thought, you know, as we look at our own culture and we look at the fact that, you know, it's, it's becoming more and more anti-God and more anti-Christian and very much secular and pagan in its, in its approach. And as Christians, we can feel a little bit overwhelmed by that and feel, well, where on earth is God's church going in all of this? 
You know, where, what's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to our kids and our grandkids? You know, with the world going the way that it is. And we can think, you know, that, uh, that, that perhaps God's a little bit out of control with, uh, you know, the, the, the things aren't under God's control in this regard. But as we look at this situation in Nehemiah, we can take comfort because the same God who acted here in Nehemiah is the same God who acts today. He's the unchanging God. He's the same yesterday, today and forever, isn't he? And so God is, is gonna, he's going to want to use Nehemiah's of today to, to do this rebuilding work, if you like. Because God is, is, is very much, you know, as we look at our society, in many ways the broken down walls of Jerusalem here in this passage remind us of the brokenness of our world today. And you and I, we may feel useless and overwhelmed by the challenges, but God is going to use ordinary people to do his extraordinary work of seeing people's lives rebuilt, of seeing you know, his kingdom established and furthered and extended throughout our world, and particularly in our own context here in this, in this neighbourhood of Marumba Downs and in this local region of Pine Rivers and Moreton Bay and further afield. God is going to do that. And he's going to use ordinary people like you and me, people who may feel useless and overwhelmed by the challenges, yes. But in the hands of the all-powerful God, then there is nothing that can prevent, you know, God can do extraordinary things in us and through us. God is going to see his church and his kingdom built up and he wants to use us just like he did Nehemiah, to see people's broken lives restored and changed and transformed by his wonderful grace. The first thing we need to remember that in God's eternal purposes, he uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. But how can we be these sort of ordinary people that God uses? We see that as part in the, uh, the, the next point, point two, where we, find, where we need to be people whose primary concern is for God and his purposes. Look at verses 2 and 3. Now, it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year as I was in, the, in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. Nehemiah says that, uh, that is a, he is situated in this place called Susa in, uh, in modern-day Iran. This particular place was the winter palace of the Persian king Artaxerxes in, uh, in Nehemiah's day. And at the end of the passage in Nehemiah 1 verse 11, we find that Nehemiah is actually a cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah's got this uh, quite uh, um, fairly uh, good position. This, he's living this kind of pretty good life right now. He's in the employ of the king. He's living in the palace. So he's surrounded by luxury. He's surrounded by comfort. He's got it pretty good. Yeah, being a cupbearer had its, had its risks because he had to basically taste all the meals and all the wine that, before the king drank it to make sure it wasn't poisoned and that sort of thing. But generally speaking, Nehemiah had it pretty good. And he could have quite easily been content with his life and his position. And yet when Hanani, it says one of his brothers, we don't know whether he's actually the actual brother of Nehemiah, we not refers to him as brother as just one of his countrymen, but Hanani comes with some of these other men from, from Judah. And when they arrive and speak with Nehemiah, we see that Nehemiah's first concern 
is for the people of God and the city of God. Look at verse 2. And when they came, he says, And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. Nehemiah's first concern was for the people of God and for the city of God. He was keen to hear about how, his, how things were going in his homeland. He was keen to ask questions of his brothers to how the returned Jewish exiles were going and the, and the, the current state of affairs of, of the city and the region, the, what, what, what was happening in Jerusalem. As we read on, we find that the response to, to Nehemiah's questions from Hanani, Hanani reports that things are an absolute mess. He says, they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile are in great trouble and shame because the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Under the Persian king Cyrus, some of the Jewish exiles had been allowed to return to Judah and Jerusalem and begin to rebuild. Remember, um, God had prophesied through, uh, you know, through his prophets, uh, particularly through people like Jeremiah, that, that the people would be in, in exile for 70 years there in Babylon. And, uh, and um, the, uh, the first um, um, group of people that were taken out of the land, if you like, from Jerusalem to Babylon happened in 605, and the last group to go through it were, were taken in 586 BC. Back in, and then, then round about uh, 516, Zerubbabel led a group of people back to, the, uh, back to Jerusalem and Judah, and they started to rebuild And that was uh, completed, um, sorry, the temple was completed around about 516. So it was a little bit before that Zerubbabel and his people uh, went back there. But the trouble is, is that when they went back and they started to rebuild, what happened is that the, some of the op there was a great opposition in the land to what they were doing. And so they wrote a letter to the king who the king had changed from Cyrus to Artaxerxes. They, they'd sent a letter saying, you know what, if you allow these people to rebuild, then all they're going to do is they're going to rebel against you and you're going to have trouble. And so Artaxerxes basically put a stop to all the work. And then these people who opposed the work then started to, to, to trash and to destroy all this rebuilding work that had already gone on. And this is what Hanani and his, uh, and his associates are reporting to Nehemiah here in this passage. And Nehemiah is just heartbroken. You know, he was... You know, the, 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 the exiles were going back. You could just sort of sense the fact that, you know, God had prophesied that, you know, this would happen. The people were going back. They could see that God's promises were being fulfilled. It was a great sort of sense of, of relief to the people who were still there in exile that, 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 that God was, you know, God was at work and that things were moving ahead. But then all of a sudden, bang, it comes to a stop. And they've got to think, oh, no, you know, God's purpose is now, what, what's going to happen with them? What's going to happen with us? Nehemiah was, 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 was heartbroken over what, he had been what had been reported back to him. The thing that sort of troubled Nehemiah the most was that, yes, he was grieved for the people, but he was, the thing that he was grieved most about was the fact that God's purposes were being impeded. And I wonder... You know, for us today, you know, when we, look at, uh, when we look at our world and we look at our own situations and things like that, you know, how much of our focus is actually on God and his purposes? You know, we can sometimes get so caught up in our own comfort and yet we can, you know, we can uh, so unselfishly think of others and, and the, uh, the predicament of others and things like that and that's, a, and that's a, a really important thing to do. 
but ultimately it should, it should be God's purposes which are first and foremost in our minds and in our hearts. And when we look at our world today and we see all the problems, are we, are we concerned for our own well-being? Are we concerned for the well-being of others? Are we concerned most importantly for the fact that, that, that God is not getting the glory that he deserves? Are we concerned first and foremost for the fact that it is, it's God's work that we should have as our, as our priority? That was Nehemiah's primary concern for God and his purposes. You know, and for us to be used by God, you know, we need to have that as very much a, a priority in our own lives, that it is God and his purposes that have got to come first. Verse 4 tells us that when he heard these things, Nehemiah sat down and wept. Not just for a few minutes or a few, for a few hours, but in fact, we'll see in a minute that it was actually for some weeks that he was mourning. He was cut to the heart by the news. And I, I think that you know, this is a, a wonderful testimony to the grace of God. He was you know, God working in this man's life. If it hadn't have been for the grace of God, if it hadn't have been for God working in Nehemiah's life, we wouldn't have seen this response. You know, and God is, is wanting to have, you know, bring about that same response in our lives. He wants to work by his grace in our lives. God had burdened Nehemiah's heart for his people and for his purposes. And out of this burden, God was going to use him to make a difference. And throughout Christian history, we've seen men and women moved by the grace of God who have been transformed, who have actually been used by God to transform societies in which they live. God gave these people a heart for the poor and oppressed, and this led to action. People like William Wilberforce and George Muller and, and William Booth, and yeah, we might sort of see that they are heroes of the faith and things like that, but you know what? These men would have seen themselves just like you or I did, as just ordinary people. Perhaps having no kind of special abilities and that sort of thing. Perhaps not really having much res many resources available to them. But did they were willing? They were just men and women who were willing just to put themselves in God's hands and to be used by Him. You know, to say, "Lord, I'm available for whatever You want to do in me and through me." And God transformed so many people's lives by that. And that same God who did that in these people's lives is the same God who wants to do that in our lives. And as we look at you know, the things around about us and we think, oh, well, you know, what can be done? We need to keep in mind that you know, we might not have the resources, we might not have the abilities, we might not have the wisdom or the knowledge or the understanding, that sort of stuff, but our God does. And our God works. And he finds ways. And the reason God does it is because his heart ultimately is for people. Yeah, God wants to bring about his eternal purposes and plans, but ultimately for the benefit of us, for the people he has made, for the people that he's created. God's heart is for people. You know, one of the things, one of the first verses that come to mind when we think about God's heart being for people is, is John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, 
He loved it so much that he gave his one and only son. That whoever might believe in him will have eternal life. There's another verse in 2 Corinthians 5, 15. It says this, and it says that, And he, Jesus, he died for all. Jesus came and gave his life so that everyone might have an opportunity to be able to become a part of his family, become a part of the family of God. He gave his life for all. And in giving his life, it says that those who live, who now live in his name, who have responded by repentance and faith in him, those who live now, who are so thankful to God for the life that they have, that he has now given them, that they should now live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and who was raised again. In many ways, that should kind of be, you know, the mantle over our lives, that Jesus died for me. And that the life that I now live in, you know, because of him, I live no longer for myself. But instead, I live it for him who died for me and who was raised again. On that day in the, city of Cit- in, in, in the citadel of Susa, Nehemiah's life basically hit a turning point. No longer was he going to live for himself. No longer was he going to just be content to live it up in the life of luxury and comfort. But no, he was going to be a man who was going to be set apart for God and his purposes. And the question we need to ask ourselves in light of this this morning is this. Who are we living for? Who or what are we living our lives for today? There are many things which will, you know really crowd in you know, on our lives and, and, and vie for our attention and our devotion and that sort of thing. But we need to ask ourselves, are these things really worth me living for? When it comes down to it, the only one worth living for is Jesus. As we look at our world and the people around us, there are all kinds of brokenness. We see that. We see that brokenness caused by sin. We see the damage that is caused by human selfishness and pride and greed. We see the devastation caused by addictions and abuse and spiritual ignorance and apathy. And the danger for us as believers today is for us ourselves to grow apathetic to that which is around about us, to become accustomed to the way that things are, to the point that things no longer bother us very greatly. Of course, another danger is to think that there's nothing we can do about it. And so we, we sort of turn a blind eye to it because we think, well, it's, you know, it's beyond me, it's beyond my control. Of course, the greatest danger is for us to develop a critical and judgmental spirit and attitude to point the finger and comfort ourselves instead with a sense of self-righteousness and think, well, too bad. Now, when Jesus approached Jerusalem for the last time prior to his crucifixion, Luke tells us that as he looked down over that city, he wept over that city. Jesus was so moved in his spirit, 
so moved in his heart that he wept for these people because he saw the brokenness of sin in their lives. And I'm sure that God looks down over, the, over his creation today and he weeps. He weeps, at that, uh, he weeps at the brokenness that sin has brought about in, in all of our lives. Do we weep for those as God weeps? Do we weep for those living far away from God? Because Jesus wants us to see the city as he sees it, to feel for the people as he feels for them, to respond as he would respond with hearts that are broken for the spiritual condition of our world but ready to take action, ready to, to say to God like Isaiah said to God, here I am, Lord, send me. And where does that action begin? Well, it begins here. It begins with prayer. Look at verse 4. Nehemiah says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This mourning and weeping and fasting and praying in Nehemiah's life went on for about 16 weeks. How do we know that? Well, it says that uh, in, verse, in chapter 1 and verse 1, he identifies that it, that it happened in the month of Kislev was when Hananiah and his brothers came to tell Nehemiah what was going on. And if you go to chapter 2, at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, it says, in the month of Nisan. These two Jewish months are basically four months apart, 16 weeks. Next week, we're going to look a little bit more at Nehemiah's prayer, but what we need to see here is that Nehemiah knew that before he could do anything, he needed to pray. He needed to bring it before God. And as we look back through history, we see almost all of the major spiritual revivals that took place were birthed in prayer. You look at the pattern of the early church, you see that there is prayer everywhere. In Acts 2.42, we read that the, the believers, you know, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship, and to prayer. They came together regularly to pray, to bring their situation and to bring everything before God. You know, in Acts chapter 4 and verse 23, when we, we see that, uh, that uh, Peter and John had been brought before the Jewish ruling council and told not to, to preach about Jesus, not to preach about his death or his resurrection, they were told to go away and keep their mouths shut. They go back and they get together with all the other disciples and they have a prayer meeting. And their prayer is this, that they prayed not that God would protect them, that God would keep them safe, that God would, you know, sort of work in the hearts of these Jewish people to, uh, you know, to change their hearts, but they prayed that God would give them a boldness to speak the word of God plainly, clearly and with courage. And as they prayed, as they, as, as they prayed that kind of prayer, we read that God shook the foundations of that place. Wouldn't it be amazing if we as the people of God came together for a prayer meeting and we prayed and God shook the foundations of this place? But I reckon that in our hearts, that deep down in our hearts, we think, no, nah, God will never do that. When we think that, we're defeated already. Satan has won the battle already.
Romans 12, 12 reminds us, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, but be constant, be consistent in prayer. Ephesians 6, 10 to 18, that wonderful passage of, of uh, you know, the, the armour of God and putting on the whole armour of God. And let's face it, you know, as we live in the kind of world that we live today, we need to be praying, praying that, that armour of God, that we take up that armour of God every single minute of every day as God's people because we're only going to be able to stand strong for God as his people as we take up that armour, that spiritual armour that God has provided for us. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And how do we do that? By putting on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Folks, we are in a spiritual war today. And with that spiritual war is the fact that we've got an enemy who is after our very souls. And if we don't take up this armour, if we don't stand strong in the Lord, then we are going to fall. And we've seen many, many people fall by the wayside over the years, haven't we? As a church, just in this church. Haven't we seen people fall by the wayside year after year after year? Young people in particular, you guys are so vulnerable right now to the attacks of the devil. You young people who are starting to make your way in the world, who are starting to understand your faith and sort of start to to work out your faith for yourselves. You are at you are at one of the most vulnerable stages of your spiritual lives right now. And you need to be putting on this whole armour of God that you might stand strong against the devil's schemes. And he's a wily old character. But not just young people, all of us, because every single one of us are vulnerable to the devil's schemes. And if we want to stand strong in the Lord and if we want to be people who are used by God, then we need to take up that whole armour of God day by day. And we need to stand strong in him and in his strength and in his power. We need to to ask that his Holy Spirit would come and fill us day by day that we might be people who are just filled and ready to respond to God at a moment's notice. No matter what God wants us to do, we say, yes, Lord. And I think, boy, he get worked up about that, Duncan. Folks, this is what we need to get worked up about. We need to get worked up about this. <clears throat> Thank God he didn't, uh, he's prevented me from having a coughing fit this morning. <clears throat> if we want to see the power of God at work in our lives and in this church and in the world, We need to be people who are committed to persevering prayer. 
We must face the fact that if we want this church and its ministries to be all that God wants them to be, then everything we, need, we, we do needs to be saturated by prayer. We need to be Jeremiah 29, 13 people. And what does that say? It says this. It says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. We need to be Jeremiah 29, 13 people where we seek God with all of our hearts. And God promises when we do that, we will find him. Nothing will ever change the fact that spiritual power is always linked to communion with God. And if you and I, folks, if we are prayerless, and if we have no appetite for God's presence in our lives and in our church, then we will never, ever reach the full potential that we have in Jesus Christ. We will never, ever get there. And as part of that emphasis on prayer, as we've been you know, talking about this as an eldership, we, you know, we've, been, we've set apart one day a month you know, in, in, in our church calendar for, for corporate prayer. It, was, it happened on a Monday night, the fourth Monday night of each month. But we, folks, we need to be doing it more often. And so on a Sunday afternoon, starting from next Sunday afternoon, starting at 5 o'clock here in the church, we want to open the church up for, for prayer, for people to come along and pray for people to come along and be prayed for, for us to come along as the people of God and to come and humble ourselves before God as we've never humbled ourselves before and to really seek after God with all of our hearts, that we might come and we might just be people. We don't want to, we want to, don't want to try and manipulate God with our prayers. We don't want to sort of try to think, you know, well, God, if we tick this box, then you've got to do this for us. No, that's not what it's about. It's just for us to come and to say, God, we're at your we're in your hands, and you do as you please. But we just want to be your faithful followers, and we want to bring everything before you in prayer. We want to saturate it in prayer, Lord. We want you. We want your name to be lifted up and glorified. We want you. We want your agenda to, 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 be, to be worked out in this church, not man's agenda. You know, not my agenda, because I'm the, you know, the, the pastor of this church. Don't think that, you know, that I'm the one who's got to set what we do here. It's God's church. If you're relying on me, you're relying on a fallible human being and you are going to be bitterly disappointed as I'm sure many of you have been in the past and you will be in the future. We need to come before God in prayer. And so Sunday afternoons, each Sunday afternoon, five o'clock here in the church, I invite you to come along. We pray, we, 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 come, to God, we come to God together and we pray for one another. So let me finish by saying this. Is there something at the moment that is keeping you from prayer? Whether it be guilt or sin or unbelief or apathy, is there something that is keeping you from prayer? I want to encourage us this morning with these words. In your prayer notes this week, you'll find the passage in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, which reminds us, that it is because of what Jesus has done for us in dying for us, in cleansing, of us, in cleansing us of our sins, that we can come boldly and confidently before his throne of grace and find all the grace and mercy that we need for everyday life. No matter who you are, no matter where you're at right now in your walk with Jesus, no matter where you're at, no matter what you've done, no matter what you haven't done, 
You know, you might think, yeah, my spiritual life is going pretty good right now. You might think at the moment my spiritual life is in the toilet. It doesn't matter. If we come to Jesus in faith, if we come to him in repentance, if we come before Jesus submitting ourselves to him, it says that we can come boldly and confidently to his throne and find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. That time of need, by the way, can be translated in the nick of time. At just the very time that we need it, we can find that grace and mercy to help us if we come to him. And I encourage you to do that today. You know, to find some point in, you know, in, 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 in the day-to-day, whether, you know, whether that be after the service this morning, whether that be when you go home, whatever. Find some time today where you just come and you come on your knees, whether that be physically or just in a mind. I know that some of our bodies, we don't, they don't let us get down on our knees anymore. We come on our knees before God. And we come to his throne of grace. And we say, Lord, I need you. I need you. Will you come to him? I love this quote from a pastor in New York. He wrote a book a number of years ago about the power of God that was unleashed in his church through prayer. And he says this, For all of us who belong to Christ, I am confident that the best is yet to come. How could it be otherwise, since we are sure of this, he says, that the God whom we love is able to do immeasurably, exceedingly abundantly more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Ephesians 3.20. Do we believe that this morning? Do you believe that in your heart this morning? That the God whom we love and serve is able to do immeasurably, exceedingly, abundantly more than all we could ever ask or imagine because of his power that is at work within us. Let us all say amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning again for your goodness and your grace towards us. Lord, you've challenged us this morning to and reminded us about the fact that You know, you are a God who uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. But in that, we need to be people who are ready to put you and your purposes first in our lives. But ultimately, we need to be people who humble ourselves before you in prayer. Faithful, fervent prayer. Lord, help us this week to walk in obedience to you. Help us this week to come boldly and confidently to your throne and receive that grace and that mercy that you alone are able to give us. And may we be able to rejoice and give you glory, Lord, in seeing you wonderfully at work in our lives and in the lives of those around about us.